This is Critical Karaoke. I'm novelist and music writer Steve Hayward. I'm Ryan Benigali, professor of musicology. I'm Idris Goodwin, playwright and hip-hop professor. Each week on Critical Karaoke, we take a handful of songs and we talk our way through them. It's history and analysis. Questions and answers. Observations and insights. All inspired by the music that we listen to. As we listen to it. It's like karaoke, but without the singing. This week on Critical Karaoke, we consider the sampling afterlife of Michael Jackson with a song titled, Love Never Felt So Good. We're going to talk about Troy, or They Reminisce Over You, by Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth. And a tenor saxophone solo from the Duke Ellington Band that changed the course of history. All that and more this week on Critical Karaoke. But first, it's Band Name Pop Quiz. This is the part of the show where I say a band name, and you tell me the origin of the band name. Okay, go. You're not allowed to Google, you're not allowed to phone a friend. Okay. This is just you, me, and history. Okay, I got it. All right, I'll give you an easy one. Black Sabbath. Oh, that's easy. A 1963 horror film starring Boris Karloff. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you do? This is Black Sabbath. Lucky guess. All right, Idris, this one is for you. Badfinger. Ooh, um... Uh, can you give me a hint? Badfinger, British band, closing credits, last episode of Breaking Bad. I have no idea, Steve. You gotta help me out. It goes to you, Ryan. Idris, come on. I mean, it's the working title for the Beatles song, A Little Help from My Friends. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know anything about England. All right, this is getting boring. You do one. Okay, name a band from a film by Bill Murray. All right, film by Bill Murray. All right, give me a hint. Uh... Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, okay. Groundhog Day, early 1990s comedy. Bill Murray stuck living the same day over again until he gets it right. Existential Parable starring Andy McDowell. Right, right, Band right. name, band yeah. name. Okay, so Murray finds himself stuck in Puxatani, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where locals intervene, interfere, and intrude. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them is named Ned Ryerson. Remember Ned? He's an insurance salesman. Ned Ryerson. Ned Ryerson! Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Come on, buddy. Case Western High. So on the final day, once Phil gets everything right, um, he goes and he buys seemingly every insurance plan available from Ned. I have not seen this guy for 20 years. He comes up to me and then he buys whole life term, uniflex, fire, theft, auto, dental, health, with the optional death and dismemberment plan. I, uh... Steve, it's the dismemberment plan. That's the name of the band. Imagine for a second that I've never heard of them. Well, this actually might be a good chance for us to do our first critical karaoke. Yeah, so this band formed in 1993, the same year as Groundhog Day. Hmm. And obviously they took their name from this kind of throwaway bit line in the movie. But the dismemberment plan came together, and they had quite a good following throughout the course of the 1990s, um, really known for their live stage show. Right. And they began to really pick up steam uh, once bands such as Pearl Jam and Death Cab for Cutie picked them up and took them on tour with them. All right. But for some reason in 2003, they called it quits. Now, if we jump forward about a decade, 2013, they're back together again, and they release a new album, Uncanny Valley. What's the name of the song? This is Daddy Was a Real Good Dancer. What it's about is finding out something mysterious, something unknown about your parents, who they were before you were born. Inspiration for the song is Brian Eno, the legendary producer, musician. The guy behind the Joshua Tree. Absolutely. The guy behind the Talking Heads Remain in Life. Yes. 
And his story, um, according to what, what uh, lead singer Travis Morrison says, is that Eno was about 45, sometime after Joshua Tree, I believe, when he found out that his own father had been a drummer, but he gave it up before Brian Eno was born. And Eno never knew. He never knew until he had already achieved this huge amount of success as a musician. He was pontificating about how amazing it was that he was this musician that had come from a non-musical family. And at dinner one night, someone's like, well, your dad used to play the drums. And so here, the father, the daddy, yeah. isn't a drummer. He's not. He's a dancer. Or he was a dancer. He was a real good dancer, according to the song. Growing up, I never knew why Daddy was so depressed He always paid his interest But he never got out of debt well, if I saw you now I guess I'd be think about dancing, you think about Michael Jackson. Yeah, you do. Idris, where, where did Michael Jackson fit into your world growing up? Well, you know, coming from an African-American household, especially one in Detroit, Michigan, uh, the music of, you know, the Jacksons, that, you know, any Motown-related music was was gospel, you know, and uh, so, and also I was a child of the late 70s, so, you know, I was there when Michael Jackson mania was at its peak. Um, he was the coolest thing on two legs, for sure. You get the critical karaoke of Michael Jackson tune. What are you going to do? You know what? I would pick the newest Michael Jackson tune out there. The newest Michael Jackson? The newest Michael Jackson tune. Came out just this last year. I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I s express incredulity around the new Michael Jackson. Didn't, didn't he die? He did. Uh, 2009 in June. So, the new Michael Jackson? The new Michael Jackson. We have this song called Love Never Felt So Good. And it's new Michael Jackson, but when we take a listen to it, you're going to hear that it's really not new Michael Jackson. It's vintage Michael Jackson. You know, it's an interesting... It's actually kind of a question that I have for you, Ryan, is that looking back over the legacy of Michael Jackson, I often wonder how much of it was the actual songs and how much of it was him and the whole mystique behind him. And I'll tell you why I asked that question is because when I think about his discography, like it's actually kind of uneven in my mind, like production wise, like really his best stuff is like, you know, off the wall thriller. Right. And then from there it gets like kind of weird and like kind of uneven and kind of yeah. unfocused. Whereas like those Quincy Jones recordings were so focused that he, that he, he created such a signature sound and everything was so cohesive and tied together. And then after that, it just felt very like kind of, Oh, here's Michael trying to do some rock stuff. And here's Michael over some Teddy Riley stuff. Right. And I think that's, that's, what's really interesting about love never felt so good is that they're going back to that old, older sound. They're going back to the Quincy Jones production style with, with respect to the, representing Michael Jackson's discography, right? If this is the lead single off of that new album, we're not going for, um, Michael Jackson singing, you know, keep it in the closet. We're getting Michael Jackson singing like he would have a track off of Thriller. Just 
song is actually vintage Michael Jackson. And it's because it is based off of, it's constructed around this demo recording that Michael Jackson made back in 1983. This is a song that's co-written between Michael Jackson and Paul Anka. The great Paul Anka? The great Canadian Paul Anka. The great Canadian Paul Anka, native of Ottawa, Ontario. Yes. All right, so what? what is some of Paul Anka? He, um, what, did, what did he, you know? Classic tunes like Diana. Oh, stay me, Diana. You're having my baby. You're having my baby. Maybe more familiar to contemporary audiences, the what? theme for the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. Right. He wrote, put your head on my shoulder. Put your head on my put shoulder. Put your head on my shoulder. Hold me in your arms, baby. And, and the Tom Jones hit. Tom Jones hit, She's a Lady. But she always knows her place. She's got style. She's got grace. She's a winner. She's a lady. Whoa, 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 she's a lady. Oh, I love that song. And apparently also the English words for my way. Right, which was originally in French. So as a good Canadian, he can translate. That's right. That's there. There's another, another instance of Canadians secretly shaping the course of world history, translating the lyrics of a, of a perennial Sinatra favorite into English. Otherwise, be Sinatra singing in French. Who wants to hear that? The entire career of Frank Sinatra, thanks to Canada. I did it my way. But we digress. So we can actually thank Paul Anka for this song, Love Never Felt So Good. All right, so he co-writes this with Michael Jackson. This is in the heyday of Jackson's career. This is a song that does not make it on to Thriller. Right. So it's 1983, and they're putting together a you know heap of possible songs for this forthcoming album that becomes Thriller. And one of the songs on there that doesn't make the cut is Love Never Felt So Good. But what they did make was a recording of with Paul Anka playing the piano and Michael Jackson singing on top of it the main melody and then singing the harmonies, doing a little bit of beatboxing, inserting his trademark falsetto woots and, and you know guttural breath noises. And then fast forward to 2013, and contemporary producers take this scratch track, this demo, and construct a new but retro-sounding hit around the recording. It takes me back to that other way of making music in the 80s where you had a Tascam 4-track. Right. And 
for the first time you could layer vocals. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really the first time, but it was the first time you could do it in your, really the first time you could do it in your own personal space. Right, right? yeah. So you've got, uh, and this is something that apparently Jackson loved to do. You know, he was famous for working with Quincy Jones throughout the 80s. Yeah. But he would bring to that collaboration demos, pieces that were already really well worked out. There's an incredible demo of the song Beat It, where Jackson's worked out every detail of the final recording. Okay, this is the harmonies, and the vocal harmonies on the choruses of uh, Beat It. Um, I'll do the verses, then, then I'll do the choruses. One, two, three, four. When Michael Jackson brought a new song in, he had usually worked it out fairly thoroughly in advance of the session. So using a multi-track recorder like you're talking about, he would record multiple lines and layers of a particular song. What we're listening to here is a, a demo version of the song Beat It. He's singing the bass line, he's singing a rhythm guitar part, he's beatboxing, he's harmonizing. Who's from the right, just beat it, beat it, beat it. No one wants to beat it, beat it. Showing how funky strong is Jeff right. It doesn't matter who's wrong or right. Just beat it, beat it, beat it, beat it. Just beat it, beat it, beat it, beat it, beat it. And what we have in the final version of this recording, when it actually makes it onto Thriller, is a fully fleshed out instrumental version that sounds almost exactly like this acapella demo. think for myself, and I'd be curious what you think, but I, the, the music that I enjoy the most of his is from that, that same era, that Quincy Jones era. Well, yeah, because I, I think it's like, you know, he, he had such a long life working under the Motown system. I mean, he pretty much grew up in it. And so by the time, you know, and there was that whole period, like, after, you know, post-Jackson 5, kind of the disco era, where he's just putting out all these singles that aren't really doing anything. He's trying to find himself. And then suddenly... You know, really at you know at the precipice of, you know, the the hip hop explosion, and and sort of that downtown New York scene, and you hear all the melding of of sort of rock and electro and all that. It's like, that's where he takes flight. And also, if you consider his age at the time as well, it makes like so much sense. In a way, Michael Jackson, in, in my mind, is is really kind of a hip hop artist, where he's of that era. I mean, he wasn't doing rap music as we know it, but. If you look at the dance moves, how much the you know the street ethos that he brought with him, uh, particularly with songs like "Beat It," uh, but then even uh, you know the video for "Bad," you know what I mean? Like he he had that sort of he knew the importance of that urban hard edge kind of kind of feel, right? And taking that urban hard edge feel and bringing it to the wider population of the United States and of the world. Yeah, no doubt.
like about these demos is the way they both indicate what this song is going to become. We can listen to them and we can hear the way in which they are these fully fleshed out entities that's already present in the in the composer's mind and already can already present in Michael Jackson's mind. Right. At the same time we hear these kind of roads not taken. Right. These these songs it's just as interesting these are interesting documents because of what the song doesn't become. Right. And this song Love Never Felt So Good it's got a lot more opportunity for being different than what this you know the single version of the song was. Frank Zappa has this sort of almost like a haiku where he says, information is not history, history is not truth, truth is not beauty, beauty is not music, music is the best. And I love that because I think it gets at the (laughs) way that at the core of the music that means most to us is a kind of transcendent timelessness. Right, I mean, the best music is the best. It wasn't very large. There was just enough room to cram the drums in the corner over by the Dodge. It was a 54 with a mashed up door and a cheesy little lamp. With a sign on the front said Fender Jam and a second hand guitar. It was a Stratocaster with a whammy bar. So with Michael Jackson, we're talking about that that kind of bringing the urban sound, the urban environment to a wider audience. And um, fast forward eight, nine, ten years and the popularization of hip hop in the early 90s. And you have, um, you know, people like DJ Jazzy Jeff and the the Fresh Prince um, with the song like Summertime that is in a mellow way introducing us to an urban environment, an urban scene. That song has got this really nice kind of laid-back groove that just seems quintessential of music of that time period, of the early 90s. Yeah, you know, um, what's really special for me about the early 90s with hip-hop music, rap music, is that during that that time there was, uh, you know, that's the era of MC Hammer. Right. Uh, that's the era of Young MC. It was when the record company started to realize, you know, if we can make bigger, brighter, club-friendly crossover hits you know with a cool music video um you know we there, there might be some money to get made and there's so, a market here yeah there's a market here and people in hip-hop culture are very you know at that point especially were very defensive very protective of the culture and so there were a lot of these responses to you know the mc hammers of the world uh from you know people who were a little bit more connected to the to, to hip-hop culture in a grassroots level um, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince certainly had made some hits and had a lot of crossover appeal, but that song Summertime that you speak of was really their attempt to kind of um, bring it down, bring it down a few decibels. Uh, you know, Will Smith tones down the sort of like playful, girl crazy guy uh, persona, and and the groove is this warm, friendly kind of uh, uh, you know uh, celebratory. You know, it's got the girl singing the hook, summer, summer, summertime. You know, summertime, summertime. Um, but then you know, a year later comes this song uh, by Pete Rock and CL Smooth called. Troy or They Reminisce Over You, um, which in my opinion is, you know, sort of operates on many levels, but it also fosters in this new moment in in rap music where we can we can mourn. It's one of the few hip-hop songs mm-hmm. about mourning. 
It's about the death of a friend. Yeah, it's about the death of a friend. So the title, you know, T-R-O-Y, They Reminisce Over You, it comes from uh, a, a dancer, a backup dancer named uh, Trouble T. Roy. He was a backup dancer for Heavy D. Grab your partner, dose dose and let it flow. Heavy D and Pete Rock are cousins. And at that time, most of the rappers were coming out of Queens, uh, Brooklyn, you know, the Bronx, Harlem. Um, and Heavy D comes out of Mount Vernon. And so the hip hop community or people who are able to break out from Mount Vernon, everyone's really, they're really tight. So you got Heavy D and the boys, it's three backup dancers. Uh, and then you got Pete Rock and CL Smooth who are kind of coming up after them. So they're all really close. And so when, when Trouble T-Roy passes away, uh, it was like a tragic accident. He like fell off of like a scaffolding or something like that. It was just kind of a fluky thing. Um, so it, it, you know, it really hits everybody very hard. And so Pete Rock wants to make this tribute and he, he carefully selects these records to convey the feeling. Um, or the emotion. And so one of the reasons I, I think this song is so special is it's a great example that sampling is not necessarily just purely there to, uh, it's not it's not just purely there for recognition. Like, oh man, I love that OJ's song and oh, look at that, now somebody's rapping on it or there's drums under it now. Uh, it's really, it's like it starts from the producer, much like a composer, yeah, you know, yeah. he's like, I want to convey a certain message. Yeah. What are the sounds that I need? There's the horn sound that that is iconic. So whenever you're at a, at a hip hop club or a night where they're playing lots of hip hop and you hear that that horn, that da -da 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 everyone goes, oh, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You um, know it immediately. You know it immediately. Right. Right. But, but no one knows the source. You know, it's not like when you sample Diana Ross or Michael Jackson or something. Nobody knows what those, nobody knows where he got those sounds from. You know what I mean? So where did he get the samples? Well, I know but, the horn comes from Tom Scott, uh, California Dreamin'. <laughs> It comes together, though, in this mix, in this way that is very detached from its, its something very new, mm -hmm. despite you know being made of samples. One of the reasons I, I really appreciate this song, and it grow, and my appreciation of it grows every year, uh, is because most of the time when you hear a hip hop beat without the vocals, you do one of two things: you start rapping the lyrics, <laughs> you know. Or you start, you know, rapping your own lyrics. Um, but basically, the beat is an invitation for you to participate. This beat, I just listened to, like as if it were, you know, a, a, a piece of, you know, a classical piece of music that we're mm -hmm. gonna, you know, because of just how brilliantly he folds it together. I mean, it's it's a it's the it's the great argument that sampling is not just theft; that it truly is art and that the song's power does not come purely from the recognition of the samples. Uh, it comes from the purity of the emotion and the focus of the emotion and hit him successfully conveying mourning uh, in, a, in, a, in a production, in a composition. You know, there's this, uh, there's this famous painting from the Renaissance by a guy named Holbein uh, called The Ambassadors. It's got these two guys, uh, ambassadors, the, covered in the accoutrements of learning. In the middle of this is kind of amorphous disc. You know really what it is when you look at the painting. If you look, if you stand just at an angle, you see it's a skull. 
And what it reminds you of is the presence of death through everything. And one of the, th- I m- remember, you know, reading about Pete Rock, reading about his way into making this song, and the way he identifies with the bass line as being this marauding presence mm. that goes through the song. When I take back, I recall a man off the family tree. My right hand, Papa Doc, I see. Took me from a boy to a man, so I always had a father. When my biological didn't bother, taking care of this. There's a little bit of a historical music connection here. Mm. That this um, this repeating bass line, this descending doon, 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 doon that goes through it. It's this repetition. It's this cycle. It's it's this um, lament. It's a lament line. So what we're hearing is this descending bass line that accompanied a lot of laments, particularly in Baroque music. Like what are we talking about, like 16th century, 17th century? Approximately, yeah. So not too far off from your painting. The most famous example would be Dido's Lament, um, which is from one of the first operas, Henry Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. It's interesting. I mean, when you when you get these kinds of um, connections that that are across history, I guess the question that it raises is, you know, what what do you make of that kind of transhistorical thing, like the the lament? If there's a connection that Peter Rock is trying to evoke, it's it's very buried. Um, I mean, is there's something if there's something about that kind of structure that puts us in this kind of mood of reminiscing over you? One of the things I think, one of the things about that that I think makes it feel like a lament, even if he's not making a historical reference to Orfeo and Monteverdi, is that this bass line is descending, it goes down, 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 but then there's almost this rebirth. It comes back to the top again. Yeah. And yeah. It's a cycle, right? And in a way, it's almost like the cycle of life. We Things move down, but then we jump back up and, and continue on. It's it's really dope that you're speaking about this, that you picked up on that, Ryan, because uh, what I wanted to speak on next uh, is the lyrics, is, you know, C.L. Smooth's lyrics. And, you know, many MCs, myself included, you start from the music. Like, you don't just, like, walk around with a rap and, oh, let me find a beat that'll fit. Uh, the best songs are the ones where you, you sit with the music for a while. Where and it begins m- with the beat. Yeah, the music tells you what to do. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I would say that C.L. Smooth's lyrics on this – I liken them to being lyric essay, right? He's not so much of uh, the, the the context in a rap song is the present tense, um, and it's about I'm rocking a show or I'm out on the street hanging out yeah. or, you know, but you got Seal Smooth giving you all of these very specific uh, images and moments throughout his entire upbringing. And, you know, he's, you don't you you don't really know exactly. It's like he's speaking directly to his family, you know, and yeah. you have to really kind of listen to it a certain way, you know, and you're interested. You're drawn in. You want to know, like, who are these people you're talking about or whatever, because it's so specific. But then in that specificity, you get the universalness of it. You start thinking back through your own family and the weird phrases and, you know, and, he, and it's and it's it's. It's melancholy like the beat. It is the it's the it's the descent and then this the ascent, right? And so he says, like, um, uh, you know, talking about his mother, she took me from a boy to a man, so I always had a father when my biological didn't bother. And I know that line particularly for a lot of hip hop fans, 
you know, yeah. who grew up without father. Like that was the line. That line was like, whoa, you know, especially, you know, in '92, you know, the music's still in its infancy, and something like that to be expressed so poetically, uh, you know, is part of the song's power. But then there's also like, you know, lines like, "My uncle Doc's the greatest." Uh, you know, if you're talking about talking about a car, my uncle Sterling's got the latest, and like, run my right. own business like my aunt Joyce. Like, so it is. It's both talking of about that. grandmother Pam. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like all of that, all of that ups and downs, all that melancholy, the life and death. Like, it's all in there. In the in the and to me that's what makes it something timeless is when it has that contradiction when it has that duality the comedy and the tragedy you know the comedy and the tragedy yeah, when it yokes them together and and in in bringing them together it says something true about you know the, the human what experience. life is what life is like on this planet love and death right this is critical karaoke stay with us I'm Idris Goodwin, and you're listening to Critical Karaoke. Now, most of the time what we do on this show is we talk about the music that we know and the music that we love, songs that we've sung so often that we're dying to say something about them. But like everybody, we can get stuck in a rut if we're listening to the same thing over and over again. So each week, we want to do the opposite. We want to bend our ears in a new and fresh direction, and we want to hear something we've never heard before. Now, to help us out with this, our friend, Ms. Avant-Garde, Maven of the Modern, musicologist extraordinaire, Sonia Hofer is in the building for a segment we call Bend Your Ear. It's nice to, nice to be here, Idris. Of course, of course. We love having you. What do you have for us today, my friend? Well, I have, you know, something interesting for you, but I think we should listen to it first and get a little taste of it. Let's go. Is this, are we? Yeah. Are you sure? Because I, I feel Shh, like. Blink. It's just that I don't hear it. <laughs> I think something might be wrong with like the equipment. Oh, no, no, it's it going. I just like... heard it. So this is it. This is oh, the yeah, thing. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me shut up. I mean, silence is part of it too, right? You just blew my mind. So, yeah. so this is a track from, I guess, probably 99 or 2000, um, one of Sachiko M's solo recordings. Um, she was part of like a big scene of, of Japanese improvisers and performers who were part of this influential movement that was came post the noise movement. Thank <laughs> you. 
So if you followed, and I'm sure you did, you were a huge fan of the Japanese noise movement of the, you know, mid to late, especially the mid to late 90s, Mertzbo era, you know, so this is kind of like the reaction that followed that of Ankyo. And so this is probably one of the seminal works of Ankyo, which means, um, which was this kind of very pared down style of music that Ankyo translating to the reverberation of sound. So mm. like focus on the nature of sound. So it's this very reductive uh, form of form of sound art or music. I mean, here's the question I have for you: Is in your head, or at least uh, f- from those of this movement that you're describing, is it music or is it sound art? I mean, these are kind of arbitrary labels, but I think there's a kind of a difference in the layperson's mind between you know what is considered music and what is considered something else. How yeah. do you look? Well, at I it? mean, that's a much bigger question. A bigger, but that's like a book <laughs> or many many books but I would define it as music and or I mean and I would define it as sound art so you know I think I, I would go both ways with that and I mean I'm not I'm not too concerned with how she defines herself I guess how do you Sonia how do you happen upon this music? Okay, that's, so you, you know, I picked this piece because, well, I'm just getting to know you guys. And so I, I picked a super autobiographical piece in some ways. And so, um, you know, I was one of those kids who worked at a record store for my high school and then college years. And, you know, we listened to all sorts of weird stuff. And, uh, you know, and I, but I was also in a music conservatory where nobody listened to any weird stuff. And so, you know, one of my undergraduate papers was on this kind of music. And I, you know, I kind of you know, had found this in a very haphazard way. A friend's dad, who was a British Columbian bus driver, um, was also, he was an actual maven of the avant-garde in some ways. And his, he moonlighted, moonlit? Moonlit. Moonlit. And he would put on these like crazy avant concerts in a small town of outside of Victoria, a bus mm. driver. I mean, mm. this is like crazy. And he brought in these musicians from Japan, um, some of which were these guys in probably 98 or 99 or whatever. So, I mean, you know, only a handful of people were listening to this kind of music, especially um, in the West. And so, you know, so some a bus driver programming and putting together a concert and having her and Otomo Yoshihide, who was like the central figure of the movement, you know, staying on his couch and playing a show for 10 people. Anyway, so, so that story, you know, so I worked with this guy's son. And so I would go to these concerts and, you know, have my mind blown. And then, you know, I was like, well, we're never going to approach any of this in music school. Mm. And so, and I wanted to write about it because it was interesting and I liked electronic music and this was, you know, kind of out there. And so that's how I came to know this stuff. For, um, you know, a person who is entering into this realm, right, uh, and they're intimidated and they don't know what to look for, uh, what would you say are, you know, how do you, I guess my question is, how do you listen to this type of music? Well, see, your whole this whole critical karaoke thing is this funny setup for me because I can't, I don't listen to music and work or do anything else unless I'm, like, listening to music for function, you know what I mean? Like, unless I'm, like, I mean, I don't even, I don't even listen to the music at the gym. Like, mm. I don't, you know, I'm not one of those people, like, I listen to music and I, like, listen to music. And so, you know, it's just 
I'll, I'll have it on at home and maybe I'll like kind of be muffling around or loafing around but like I can't really be engaged in anything else because I'm kind of I, like it's like chewing gum and walking but mm-hmm. then at the same time like you know it's super sparse and it's really long and so you want to like get to the end of it too so like it's kind of when you're in like a zombie phase before you're going to go to bed and you have to like shuffle around quietly so it's like reading a, it's like um taking in a novel yeah like you don't just like you know have a novel while you're cooking eggs or something like that like, yeah you know, so for you you're in, you're this is so so i guess if i can if i can maybe paraphrase or at least what i just heard you say for me who's like how do i listen to this music the question is or the answer seems to be you have to actually listen to it yeah it's like, quiet you have yeah, to listen to you it you have to sit down <laughs> and you just have to like sit there and just really listen to what's yeah. going down and he, and it kind of works really well li- well i mean with the head with headphones on it works with headphones you know what i mean because it, if you were wearing headphones then you're like forced to find out how close or far away the sounds are because like they're so quiet so it's just it's it's forcing your ears to work you know what I mean so it just like draws you in and then the music really works live in the same way because you know kind of those borders of where the sounds start and stop you know when you're in if you're just sitting there in the audience like again it just forces you you your physiology or whatever to work and, it, you know, it's really quiet right now, but, like, you know, you get one of those, like, piercing little sounds, which she will do in concert and, like, you know, like, really drive it home. It hurts. It gets mm. loud. Mm. Anyways. So it's kind of like a physical kind of listening. So, Sonia, how is this music made? I mean, is this, are we listening to like, a synthesizer? <laughs> yeah, like, are we listening to, is this, I mean, is these people with instruments? Are these synthesizers? Like, how is this? Well, that's, that's the interesting thing about it is that, you know, I mean, I guess you could make anything into an instrument and that's what's been, been kind of neat about what's been happening in the century. But with Sachiko's stuff in particular, so her main instrument of choice is that she takes um, like a sampler, like an Akai, some sort of like crappy sampler and mixer and, you know, this is a device that's meant to store information, tracks, at sa- snippets from tracks or whatever. And um, well, she but she doesn't use it that way. She kind of she's hacked it, and you know she, her her main intr- instrument is an empty sampler. So she uses the test tones and reroutes them into themselves and like creates weird feedbacks and whatever. You know, what I mean, so she's basically treating this digital piece of technology that's meant to do something, but then, you know, kind of treating it as a mechanical hands-on object. And, you know, again, and then kind of going against the philosophy of the instrument itself, you know, because it's supposed to be like this full of information and full of like whatever. And so it's kind of like a, you know, critical commentary for her as well in terms of like, you know, information overload. So like, you know, using this thing that has this potential to do to contain all this crap but but then you know you know keeping it at void mm. well sonia i thank you for bending my ear uh to this and i and i'm definitely going to try to get myself educated and uh i will sit and i will listen to this i will not throw this on in my car while i go you know driving on on 20 i don't know if you'll hear it if you <laughs> <I know. laughs> <laughs> might not hear it over the engine right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you Switch gears a little bit. Want a critical karaoke, a little bit of jazz. Do you do you listen to jazz, Idris? Come on, man, stop playing. Of course, I listen to the jazz music. (laughs) 
is jazz still the kind of music that people listen to? Absolutely. I mean, it's not, you know, at one point in our country, it was pop music. And so it's no longer pop music. But yeah, I mean, there's great, you know, people are listening to the, to the old stuff and people listen to the new stuff too. Can I ask you guys a question? I mean, with jazz, how much... By percentage of the listening that you do, how much of, would you say you listen to jazz? Well, I mean, I, I guess it would. I guess it has to do with the definition of what you mean by listening to. Like, I'll have mm-hmm. jazz. I hate to say this, but I often have it in on in the background. I often play jazz. Particularly, I listen to jazz a lot when I write. But I listen to jazz when I write because it's unobtrusive. It's unintrusive. I mean, um, you know, I can sort of zone out to it a little bit, but I rarely sit down with a jazz record and just notice the changes and the progressions and all of that business. So is that something that you would do with other genres of music though? Yeah. I, I think that it, it's not uncommon for me to hear, uh, say a, a more contemporary song or not a jazz song, I should say. And to hear it sort of distantly or, you know, sort of in the background and think, what is that? I have to find out who that is and what it is. I need to give that a close listen. Mm-hmm. I'll be much more intentional about doing that, I think. With non-jazz. With non-jazz, uh-huh. yeah. I think also, too, you know, with the exception, I, I listen to a lot of instrumental music, down-tempo stuff, uh, but, you know, music that has lyrics, predominantly, that like the, that's where the lyrics are there, you know what I mean? They yank you back into it. So a lot of times I'll be doing business and I'll have the music playing, but then a hook, you know, the hook will literally just do that and hook me back into the music and I'll be singing along with it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but jazz just isn't designed, most of it, you know, isn't designed that way uh, in my mind. Every so often, though, you have this moment in which jazz breaks through into the popular mainstream, right. where suddenly the general population is aware of jazz. Right. It becomes more like than that. just something in the background. Exactly. Yeah. So we want to talk about one of those moments that okay. just happened. It's in the film American Hustle. So, one January, I go to my friend's pool party in Long Island. The mid-70s, it's decadent. It's an indoor pool party. There are guys in hot tubs with cigars. There's people on water slides. Everybody's having one of those crazy times. And what you see happen is out of the corner of the the corner of the screen, suddenly you see a hand, a woman's hand. It has a bracelet on it. And the bracelet is a Duke Ellington bracelet. Is that Duke Ellington on your bracelet? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it is. He died this year, you know? I know. I doubt anyone else here knows or cares about it. Well, I care about it. He saved my life many times. Mine too. Now, American Hustle is about a pair of con artists that are played in the movie by Christian Bale and Amy Adams. And they have this odd connection about jazz that happens over and through Duke Ellington. And one of the interesting things about the film is the way that these people, despite these two con artists, despite the profound inauthenticity with which they live their lives, the way in which they're completely composed of lies and double talk and stories, they have a kind of authentic, a kind of genuine connection through the music of Duke Ellington. And the song is Jeep's Blues that they connect over. Okay, Jeep's Blues. Jeep's Blues. Jeep's Blues. Mm-hmm. Chips, please. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to hear it? Right now? Yeah. Sure.
starts a song like that? It's magic. So this is Jeep's Blues. Yeah. Duke Ellington, 1956, Newport. Okay. Tell me what's going on. Well, what we're hearing here is that classic big band sound, right? The brass, the woodwinds, they're all working together. And then out of this, this introduction comes this alto saxophone solo. Johnny Hodges. Johnny Hodges, exactly. Now, Hodges has been playing with the Ellington band basically since its inception. He's been with Ellington through his early years in New York after Ellington moved up from D.C. He plays with them as a touring in the country throughout the 30s into the 40s. And here he is in the 50s, after almost 30 years of the band, still playing with Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington introduces the song by saying, if you've heard of the saxophone, he says, I simply want to say, I'm, I'm sure if you've heard of the saxophone, you've heard of Johnny Hodges. Johnny Hodges is one of these musicians who just played for years and years and years on end. And he always had this just warm, vibrato-filled sound. Um, but he doesn't fill up a lot of space. You don't hear a ton of notes in his solos. He lets he lets us have a chance to catch our breath, to hear what he's really playing, to really give us a narrative that we can all imagine in our heads as we listen along. In American Hustle, Christian Bale says, who starts a song like that? And he's referring to the huge crescendo. Yeah. Just, just, it's, it's just, it's catching your attention. I mean, one of the things we need to remember about this music, what made it so popular, is that people were dancing to it. I mean, this is a slow dance right here. One of the things that catches us, that surprises us as we watch a film like American Hustle and we hear the Newport 1956 recording, is the amount of crowd noise that is on that album. Yeah. I mean, this is a crowd that is shouting. This they is are. a crowd that's really into it. They're into it on the recordings that we're hearing now, right? This, if you listen to that whole recording, they're not so into it at the beginning of the album. Right. But as it goes on, there's a turning point. There's a moment where the crowd really gets into what, what's going on on stage. Now, the fact is that uh, when, uh, when Ellington first takes the stage at Newport in 1956, he's at a kind of a low moment in his career. Yeah. This is 1956. This is after the golden age of the big band. Absolutely. This is the time when big bands are going out of business, when it's a struggle to keep the big band going. And in fact, Newport, when he first takes the stage... He plays a very kind of scattered version of the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, it is. It, it seems very odd that that's what they would open up with. It's a kind of sardonic. It's nationalistic, but it's also it's also a little sardonic. And in fact, Ellington can't find four or five of his band members. They, they're not even not even there to go on stage. They're just not ready to go on yet. Might have been too early in the day for them. And this gives us some uh, indication of really what a low moment it is in the career of Duke Ellington. This moment when he seems to be on his way out, when things are no longer, when things ain't what they used to be. There you go. Right. And uh, I mean, the week before. 
Ellington is playing his old favorites mm -hmm. at an ice skating rink. Makes sense that you know this is his music has kind of gone out of style. It's no longer the cool jazz. It's literally not cool jazz. I mean, it's it's um, past bebop. We've got a whole new genre of musicians and soloists out there, and that's not what Ellington is. Ellington is kind of staying true to his his game. He's playing the music kind of the way that it always had been played in the past. One of the things that's fascinating about Newport 1956, this great legendary album by Duke Ellington, is the way that it moves from this scattered star-spangled banner to the amazingly triumphant anthemic Jeep's Blues. This crowd that is at the beginning not into it. Mm -hmm. This band who is at the beginning not into it. And then we move to this band that is fully committed and this crowd that is absolutely wrapped up they in, are this, on board. in this rapturous. Something happens in the middle of it. Something changes. Something changes in the course of history, in the course of jazz history, in the course of Duke Ellington's career and the career of everyone involved. Right. And that's what I want to critical karaoke. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about that saxophone solo. You know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, the one by um, Paul Gonzalez in the middle of uh, Diminuendo in Blue. All right, let's hear it. All right, so what's, what's going on here at Newport? It's late. Duke Ellington is on the stage, comes back on the stage after starting off the festival. It's about midnight. People are beginning to get tired. People are beginning to leave. And Duke Ellington, seeing this, decides that something has to be done. So, right. He decides he needs to start playing some songs that people might be familiar with, like this one, Diminuendo in Blue and then Crescendo in Blue. These classic tunes that, you know, really put Ellington on the map during the 1930s. All right, so they get into it, they play, they let it go, right? And then, and then what happens? Then what happens, so this, this piece, Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue, is set in two halves. When it was recorded, it was actually on two different sides of a 78 RPM record. And um, what they do in concert was to kind of separate the two halves of the song, they would extend it and open it up for solos. Oh, is that right? So then, so then Diminuendo was on like the A side and Crescendo was on the B side? Flip that. Or the crescendo other and, then, and then, yeah. No, you're right. Diminuendo and then the Crescendo. And so in, in between, in that interval in which, I guess, at home with your record, you'd be flipping it over. Right. Uh, Duke Ellington introduces, he says, what we're going to have there is a, is a saxophone solo. Right. And he actually announces this to the crowd, perhaps to get them, you know, to stick around and want to listen to what's going to happen because they might be familiar with the tune, but they're not going to know what's going to happen during the solo section. So he says in the introduction, he says, and we're going to have in the interlude in the, in the middle section between the two halves, a solo by Paul Gonzalez. And now we would like to play some of our 1938 vintage diminuendo in blue and crescendo in blue. These are separated by uh, an interval by Paul Gonzalez which he will refer to in later years as being the wailing interval, or he'll call it blow by blow. It's this right. It's a, it's a screaming 27 chorus long solo, 27 choruses of 12 bar blues. So what's 27 times 12? That's however many measures this solo goes on for. Tell me a little bit about Paul Gonzalez. So Paul Gonzalez uh, is a tenor saxophone player. 
He joins the Ellington Band, I believe, in the early 1950s. So he's kind of the new kid on the block. He's not someone like, like Johnny Hodges. He's been playing with the ensemble for forever. He's also playing in a slightly different style than a saxophonist like, like Hodges, who grew up coming out of the swing era. Um, Gonzalez comes out of the bebop era. He's maybe not as adventurous as someone like John Coltrane, mm -hmm. but he's playing a lot more with the, um, the different harmonies, the different rhythms, the different intervals of the solo. Um, there's a lot more variety, a lot more angularity to it than if you were going to compare his playing to that by Johnny Hodges. So what happens is he takes the stage and he goes to the wrong microphone. Yeah. There's two microphones that are on stage, one of which is he's supposed to play and it's going to be going uh, to be recorded, and the other one is, is sort of an announcing uh, microphone. Right, I think it was the microphone that was set up for, I think it was for Voice of America, it was for mm -hmm. the radio. And that was the announcer's microphone, so he goes to the wrong one. So before the remastered recordings that have come out of this whole concert event, um, you could barely hear Gonzalez's solo. It was very faint in the background. One of the things that you can hear is the crowd, though. And as Gonzalez gets into the solo, something seems to change. It begins as a kind of, begins as a, as a solo. And then it, it picks up. It changes. It gets going. The crowd becomes wildly interested. People start to come back in. What changes? Well, according to legend. According to this is this is now what we're talking about here is we're talking about jazz legend. Jazz about, legend. About right. one of those moments is if you were there. Right. You've got this famous solo and then this famous moment that happens in the middle of the solo. All of a sudden in the middle of the solo, a woman gets up. She's moved to stand up and begin dancing. here is that the, the Newport Jazz Festival today is very different than what it was back in 56. Right? It's a big deal now. It's a huge deal now. Back then, small summer community event. They bring Ellington in largely as a nostalgia act, so nobody's really expecting this big giant moment to happen. This woman gets up out of the audience when Gonzalez gets steps up to the mic, the wrong mic, which allows us, because he's at the wrong mic, it allows us to capture that, the liveness of it, the feeling of, right. of, of the way in which suddenly the music, the moment, takes flight. And Ellington just lets him go, just lets him continue to play. And Ellington, legend has it, sees this woman. She's wearing a black dress. She looks a little bit like Marilyn Monroe. She stands up in the crowd and she begins to dance. And we don't know exactly what type of dancing she was doing to this, but we know that there was some interaction between her between the audience and really between the, the audience and Paul Gonzalez. You can really hear it going here right now. So as she moves, he plays a line. As he plays a line, she moves. This is back and forth, back and forth, and the energy's building, and the energy's contagious. And the energy continues to sprawl out amongst the entire venue, and before you know it, everybody's into it. Everybody's on board. And it really raises Duke Ellington out of the ashes. He goes, at that moment, in that solo, from being the leader of a big band that's on its way out, that has ceased to be relevant, that has ceased to be exciting, to being 
this incredible moment. What he recaptures here is that element of liveness, that excitement that comes from live jazz performance. He brings back the magic of years of experience of being on the road, of touring with these band musicians, um, night in, night out, venue after venue, and the excitement that happens only in live performance, and only when you have a soloist like Gonzalez really taking it away. Is it that he's such a great soloist? Or is it that it's such a great moment? You know, it's the right place, right time. Gonzalez is playing in this kind of post-bop style. So the audience, the people who are coming to the Newport Jazz Festival, are going to have this, this you know, bebop sound in their ears already. And Ellington's act is primarily a swing act. So there's this merging that happens on purpose or by accident uh, when Gonzalez takes the stage and is allowed to perform in this more modern style that really does tend to get the audience more riled up. What we hear in this extended solo is that Gonzalez goes from kind of just starting to play, he might be tired, he might not want to be there either, but as he gets into it and the crowd gets into it and they go chorus after chorus after chorus after chorus, we almost can't hear where one chorus ends and another chorus begins. He's just playing one long extended solo and everybody is completely into it. What happens to Duke Ellington after Newport 56? Duke Ellington after Newport 56, um, he's back in the game, and I think he's given a certain amount of musical freedom as a result of this. It's up in the mid-50s where Duke Ellington really starts experimenting with his collaborator, Billy Strayhorn, mm-hmm. and they start doing these incredible re-envisions of, of known and uh, well-known classical works, well-known jazz works, and really pushing the boundaries of what big band jazz can be in this post-bop era. And Paul Gonsalves, does he go on to become one of the major players of the uh, of the bebop era? You know, he doesn't, but he sticks around and continues to play with, with Ellington. There's something kind of melancholic about this solo, the way in which it is this moment when he plays above anything he's able to do before or after. Yeah, and I think that the legend that goes along with it, it certainly adds to our understanding and, and uh, expectations of that solo in that way. Ellington dies in 74, two days after Paul Gonsalves himself dies in London. Right, and there's this um, story that Duke Ellington's son, Mercer Ellington, um, learns of Gonsalves' death and refuses to tell his father that, that Gonsalves has died because he's worried that it will affect his, his, da- his dad's already declining health. He's worried that, that it'll be too, too much of a blow, too much of a loss for Ellington to hear that Gonsalves has, has passed away and he, Gonsalves does pass away, and then so does so does Duke Ellington, and the two are long, two reside briefly right. in the same funeral home in New York. Gonsalves wow. dies in London, is flown back to New York, and the two are inhabit the same space for just a brief moment again, reunited. Yeah, some twenty years after the the legendary moment. For more information or where to find any of the tracks that we've been listening to or for the complete story behind any of the stories that we told you this week, visit us at criticalkaraoke.com. <laughs>